0: are listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. If you have a Bible with you, if you'll make your way to the letter of Galatians, today we're in Galatians 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. If you're a guest with us, one of our things that we most commonly do is make our way through a book of the Bible. We feel like that is the most helpful way to, to hear from God and to really to interact with His Word, And we've been making our way for several months now through the letter of Galatians. And today we're in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. and I want to invite you to follow along now as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Paul writes in this section, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God bless the preaching of His Word. In his classic book entitled Knowing God, which I believe has sold over 2 million copies, author J.I. Packer begins one of his chapters with this question. What is a Christian? He goes on to answer, the question can be answered in various ways. But the richest answer that I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. to answer that question, what is a Christian? Dr. Packer would say that question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer is that they know God, that a Christian is one who knows God as Father. He goes on to say this a little bit later in that chapter. When you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook of life, it means he does not understand Christianity well at all. Now, he's not saying they're not a Christian, but he's saying if that thought of calling God father and knowing that we are his children If that is not the controlling thought, then we don't understand Christianity as well as we ought. And so here is his recommendation. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp Of adoption. Here's the question this morning. I want to begin with. Do you understand what it means. To be adopted by God. And to call him father. If Dr. Packer is right. And I believe as we're going to see. In this text this morning. That he is. Right on point. That our understanding of Christianity. Cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Do you understand no matter how long you've known the Lord, whether you are a new believer, you are a seasoned believer, or you're here this morning and you are still trying to understand what Christianity is all about. Do you understand what it means to be adopted by God and to call him father? You see, by failing to understand what it meant to be adopted by God, Those in the church of Galatia were tempted to desert the God who called them by His grace. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 6. This is why Paul is writing this letter to this church. After preaching the gospel to them in less than a year's time, he then writes them this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Why? Why would these who heard about the gospel and even are professing Jesus as their Savior, why would they begin to desert the God who called them by His grace? Well, I think the answer lies here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. They did not understand what it meant to be adopted by God and to call Him Father. So my aim over these next few minutes with you is to focus on what it means to know God as Father. Our outline for this morning is this. We're going to break down this passage into three parts. We're going to see a childlike condition, verses 1 through 2. God's decisive action, verses 3 through 5, and our experience of adoption, verses 6 through 7. So let's begin. Look again with me at chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, and we see this childlike condition that Paul speaks of. Now, to understand what Paul means, we have to begin back in chapter 3, verse 23. Remember, we have chapter and verses, that's not how it was written. This is a letter. So what he's writing here at the beginning of, of, of chapter 4 flows out of what he just said. So it can almost seem abrupt when we started. I mean that an heir, as long as he's a child, and you're like, well, okay, Paul, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Because he's still continuing on in a thought. So let's get a sense of the context. Go back to chapter 3. I want to read verses 23 through 26, and then 29 into chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 again. Paul writes in verse, chapter 3, verse 23, Now before faith came And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Do you see the context now? Verses 1 through 2 are a bridge. That are moving us from what Paul just said in chapter at the end of chapter three into what he's going to say next throughout chapter four. But before we can understand the point Paul is making in these verses, I think it's in, it's important that we put to rest a myth that I believe plagues the mind of so many American churchgoers. So we must clear this away before we can go any further. What is that myth? The myth is that everyone on the planet is a child of God. You've probably heard that said. You may say, "Well, yeah, that isn't that true." That is actually that idea is actually called the universal fatherhood of God, and I think what it's getting at is something important. But we must make a distinction. And differentiate between what it means that that people are created in the image of God, and we must distinguish distinguish that between what it means to be children of God. See what people mean when they said everyone is a child of God. What they're meaning is everyone was created in the image of God, created by God in the image of God. Therefore, everyone on the planet who's ever lived is then has equal dignity, value, and worth. But we must not confuse the image of God with being children of God. We we must not confuse those two. Failing to make the distinction between being made in the image of God and being adopted by God. Listen, if we don't make that distinction, we can actually undermine the core message of the gospel. Why do I say that? Look back at chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God. So those who are in Christ Jesus. Are sons of God. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ. Then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. So who? belongs to the family of God. That's what Abraham represents. He's the family of God. He was the father of the family of God. Well, how how do you belong to that and receive the promises of Abraham? Those who are in Christ. That's an important distinction we must make. That being image bearers of God is not the same thing as saying that everyone is a child of God. Because if everyone is a child of God, they're not in need of salvation and adoption and that's not how the scripture speaks so we don't want to make distinctions where the bible doesn't or we we want to make distinctions where the bible makes distinctions and this is one of those important important ones we want to see That those who belong to Christ, there is no distinction as we saw last week. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. So if you're in Christ, there is no distinction. There is a distinction between humanity. There are those who belong to Christ and there are those who don't. Two kinds of people in this world. Those who belong to Christ and those who don't. And those who belong to Christ are His children. And I think it's important that we see that before then we move on. Now look at chapter four, verses one through two. We just read this passage a minute ago where Paul's using this imagery of a child. Why is he doing this? Well, this imagery of childhood represents a temporal period of time. If you remember back in chapter three, verse 23 and 24, he talks about there was a time before faith came, before faith in Christ came, and then all of a sudden Christ would come and everything changed. Well, this, this childhood that he's talking about represents that time in Israel's life before when they had inherited the promises, but Christ who all the promises pointed to and would fulfill all those promises, He hadn't come. So that's what He's doing here. He's he's using this analogy. And here's the analogy. Imagine being an heir to a great king. And because you're the heir of this great king or queen, you are going to one day have a great fortune and you are going to basically rule the world. Imagine that. You are the heir of this kingdom. But the king has decided that you will not be able to be an heir until you are 18. And at this time, you are four years of age. And you have servants in the house, in the kingdom, who take care of you. They make sure you get up every morning. They make sure that you get your homework done. They make sure that you go to bed at a certain time. Now think about this. This is the point Paul's making. Even though your status is radically different from theirs, you're an heir, they're a servant, though your status is radically different, on a day-to-day basis, you don't live any different than they do as long as you're a child. (laughs) That's the point he's making. Though Israel had been given all these promises, they... They were still in this season of life like childhood. Promises that were great and were real and were true, but they could not act upon until a certain time had come. See, this was Israel's story before Christ came. And these verses, as I said a minute ago, tie chapter three and the rest of what comes next in chapter four together. Now that brings us to verses three through five God's decisive action. And what Paul does now in verse three is he's going to look back at that illustration he just gave about childhood, but he's going to tweak it a little bit. And sometimes it's hard to understand. It's like he's using still this this imagery, but he's changing it enough that kind of leaves you scratching your head for a second saying, "Okay, Paul, what point are you making? Look at verse three. He goes on to say, in the same way, we also When we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. So here's now where there's a a change in the analogy. Still talking about us being like children. But now Paul expands the analogy, not just to include Jews, but Gentiles before they came to Christ. And now not only does he say before Christ came and we came to Christ where we like children, but we were actually enslaved in need of freedom and in need of our status being changed. Now, the ways in which we are enslaved before we come to Christ, that is the topic of next week's passage. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but Paul is going to address in verses 8 through 11, what does he mean by saying you were all enslaved before you came to Christ. He is going to speak about that in great detail. And in the days ahead, Paul in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 is going to talk about what it means to be free in Christ. So for now... I don't want to say too much here because I know we're going to get there in the days ahead. What I want to do now is reflect on what God has done by sending Jesus in to the world. If we were enslaved and these promises were given were not things that we could benefit from and behold until Christ came, then let's look at what happened once He came. Verses 4-5. through But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In verse 4, get this, we discover what God did to solve our problem of being enslaved to sin, separated from Him, and separated from His promises. If that's true, that we had this problem of being enslaved, we could not then take on the promises of God, and therefore we were separated from God. Something had to happen, and here's what happened. God acted. It says, at a predetermined time, one God had set forth. Look at verse For begins, when the fullness of time had come, at a certain time, God the Father sent His Son into the world to redeem us from slavery and to make us sons of God. So if we were enslaved to the law, to sin, and the promises of God were things we could only see, but not be able to, to behold and to enjoy and to claim. What did God do? God, at a certain time, sent God the Father sent the Son to redeem us so that we would no longer be slaves, but sons. And pay attention to how God redeemed us. Don't, don't, don't move past verse 4 too quickly and miss all that it says to us about Christ. How did God redeem us? He sent His Son. You know what's implied in that? He sent His Son. His Son came from heaven. He's His Son. That means this One whom He sent was divine. Even though it doesn't say that clearly in the text, that's what's being implied. He was divine, yet He came as a man. He was born of a woman. And He entered the world as one of us under the law. You see, in order for Jesus to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, chapter 3, verse 13, remember that glorious truth we saw a few weeks ago that, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us? Well, in order for that to happen, Jesus had to be both God and man. And Chapter verse 4 reminds us of who this one is that was sent by God. He is both God and man. Why? He had to be perfectly obedient to redeem us from the curse of the law. How could one who was a lawbreaker redeem us from the curse of the law? So he had to be perfectly obedient to redeem us from the curse of the law, but he had to be able to die in the place of lawbreakers. He had to be both God and man. And verse 5 tells us why God sent Jesus into the world. He tells us in verse 4 how He came. He came from heaven, born of a woman, born under the law. But why did He come? To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Did you catch that? Why did God send His Son into the world? To redeem us so that we could become His sons. That's the purpose and meaning of the cross. That is why Christ came to earth To redeem us so that we could be sons. Now you might be thinking, Josh, why why the language of sons here? Is that significant? And the answer is yes. It doesn't say children. Now there's times in our Bibles, many times you maybe have noticed this, when I come upon the word brothers, I say brothers and sisters because the word in the Greek is actually brothers and sisters. And sometimes our English Bibles just say brothers, but it actually means brothers and sisters. This word actually means sons, and it's very significant that it doesn't mean children. Why? Because Paul is using an analogy from the ancient Near East, and in that culture, sons receive the inheritance. So the point he's making is not just that we're children of God, which is true, but by emphasizing sons, he is saying like Abraham's all that he was promised went on to who? Isaac and then to Jacob. That we inherit as sons all the promises that belong to the family. We receive the inheritance. And that's why Christ came. He came to redeem us so that we could become sons. Let, listen, let, let this truth sink in. That we've been adopted by God through the death of Christ. And that gets at the heart of the message of the gospel. Let that sink in. The fact that you and I, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we've been adopted by God. And that is the heart of the message of the gospel. J.I. Packer, who I quoted a minute ago, he went on to say in the same chapter, he says, the truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. You know the point he's making? You want to understand the greatness of God's love? You can't go any higher than understanding what it means to be adopted by God. You want to understand God's love? Understand what it means to be adopted by God. Then he goes on to say, were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. Dr. Packer basically is saying if someone was to say, Dr. Packer, can you put the gospel in three words? He would say, yes, adoption through propitiation. We were made sons through the substitutionary death of Jesus. We became heirs Because Christ died. Adoption through propitiation. And he goes on to say, I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. And I would agree. (laughs) Adoption through propitiation. Then he goes on to say, we all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us. Making us restless, miserable. And in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of our restored relationship with God more than we need anything else. So he's saying, listen, to be forgiven, to have our guilt taken away, that is the most important thing. But, but contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are the heart of the relationship. Listen to this. To be right with God the Judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Yes? Amen? To be right with God the Judge is a great thing. It is a great thing. If God sent Jesus... Simply to forgive us of the sins we've committed and that Jesus bore the wrath we deserve and we will never experience the judgment that we are all owed because of our sins. That is great. But you know what's greater? It's not just being forgiven by the judge. It's being loved and cared for by God the Father. Friends, to be justified before God by faith in Jesus so that we are not condemned of our sins, we are not separated from God, that is a great thing. It is a great thing. To be forgiven and to be redeemed is an immeasurable gift of grace that no one deserves. But to call God our Father and to relate to Him as as His beloved children, and to be co-heirs with Christ, that is greater. So here's my question for you. Is this how you relate to God? Is this how you think about God? Is your relationship with God marked by closeness, affection, and by His generosity toward you? When you think of the gospel, do you just end with justification? What a wonderful gift that is. That we are justified before a holy God. Not by on the basis of anything we've done, but what God has done for us. What good news! But listen, that doesn't stir affection, appreciation, gratitude. Glad I'm not getting what I deserve. God must be merciful to do that. But if that's where we end, we, we are missing the heart of the message of the gospel. So let me ask you again, is this how you relate to God? Is your relationship with God marked by closeness, affection, and by His generosity toward you? You see, I believe the reason so many children of God will never delight in knowing God as Father, well, it's twofold. One of the reasons there are many Christians who will never delight in knowing God as Father is because they've never reflected on what it means to be adopted by God. We've not spent enough time thinking about this truth that is very clear here in Galatians 4, 1-7. Paul has talked in great detail already about what it means to be justified by faith, but he doesn't stop there. He begins there. You have to begin there, but He doesn't end there. But I wonder how many of us have ever spent time reflecting on when it means to be adopted by God. But there's a second reason. There's a second reason so many children of God will never delight in knowing God as Father. And it's because we base our relationship with Him on subjective impulses. What do I mean by that? Listen to these words. From fellow Sovereign Grace Pastor C.J. Mahaney. He says, we have an impulse to look within, to find a reason for His love. Because we have an arrogant desire to be worthy of His love. We want to find in ourselves some reason to be deserving of His love. It is a false hope that we will discover something within us that incline God to love us. There is not a thing within us that incline God to love us. The more you look within, the more you will discover reasons for Him to correct you, not to love you. And I think this forms the daily challenge for each of us theologically and personally and experientially. How can I be certain of His love for me since I'm unworthy of His love? Have you ever wrestled with that? You ever felt that? C.J. goes on to say this passage protects us from the arrogant, futile impulse to look within to find a reason for God's love towards us. Because this passage directs our gaze away from ourselves and outside of ourselves to the heart of God, to the initiative of God and the decisive action of God revealed in verses four through five. This passage, CJ says, is the theological remedy for our subjective impulse. What do we do when we are tempted, which we most likely are. You have probably been tempted many times to feel this way. What do we do when we're tempted to look within and say, I am such a wretched person. How in the world could God love me? You know, I'm certain that he must not. He must not have any affection for me. How could He have affection for me? I can't stand myself. How could God love me? And the remedy is that we take our eyes off ourselves. We stop looking in ourselves and we look beyond ourselves to God and what He has done. His decisive action. And that's what we see here in verses 4-5. through God did something. God did something that had nothing to do With how wonderful we are, how amazing we are, how worthy we are, God did something. And when we look at it, it puts the subjective impulses to death. So how do we experience the love of God if we are children of God by faith? If you this morning are a child of God because you put your faith in Jesus Christ, how are you to experience the love of God? When you were to look to the cross where Christ died and you were to remember the reason He died so that you could be a son. so That you could be one of His children whom He delights in and is affectionate towards and loves to bless. When we forget, we're tempted to look within we must remember to look to the cross and to remember the reason Christ died. That brings us now to our experience of adoption in verses 6 through 7. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Once we were adopted by God and treated as His sons. notice what God did. God sends His Spirit into our hearts so that we will call Him Father. Do you, do you notice what God has done in this passage? Take this in. Not only did God send His Son in order to make us sons, He sends His Spirit to enable us to call Him Father. How amazing that God would send His Son so we could be called sons. And that He would send us His Spirit so that we could call Him Father. Now, did you notice something? Did you notice how all three members of the Trinity, both Father, Son, and Spirit, are involved in our adoption? Don't move too uh, too fast past that. And did you notice who initiated all this activity? God the Father. God the Father did. And why did He send the Son? And why did He send the Spirit? So that you and I could know Him as Father. God the Father sent the Son and sent the Spirit for what reason? So that we could call Him our Father. That. That is the good news of the gospel. Now, what difference does this make to call God our Father? Well, Paul answers that in the last part of this passage, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The point being made is this. Because we are sons and no longer slaves, we should relate to God as those who received His favor and reward. That's how we ought to relate to God. So what difference does it make to view God as Father? And not just as judge. Is not just a holy, merciful, gracious God, but actually as Father. How do we relate to Him? We relate to Him as one who has already received His favor and reward. You see, instead of basing our relationship on law-keeping, which is what the Galatians wanted to do, we must base it on the fact that we are His children whom He delights in. That's how we ought to relate to God. Not as one who's got this list of all the things that people could do wrong, and every time we do wrong, check, check, check. He's a Father who delights in us. And who has already promised rewards to us. See, the mistake that the Galatian church made that caused them to drift away from the God who called them by His grace was this. It was their failure to relate to God as their Father and to forget their adoption. That's the lesson for us to learn. If the Galatian church could hear the Apostle Paul preach... I'm sorry this morning, you have to hear me preach. Wouldn't you have liked to have heard the Apostle Paul preach? They heard him preach the gospel. And they're tempted to one day walk away and begin to add works and law keeping to the message of grace. Why? Because they forgot that God was their father and that they had been adopted. And if that's true for them, it can be true for us. We can be tempted with the same things. To forget these two glorious truths. Our God is our Father if we belong to Christ. And because He's our Father, we, we relate to Him that way. We're His children. We've been adopted. So how do we avoid this error? Look again at verse 7. He says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I think in that last statement, we are an heir through God. We we find two practical things to hold on to and to remember. In order to keep us from falling into this same temptation that the Galatians fell into. What are we to remember? We are to remember we are heirs of God. And that we are heirs through God. We are heirs of God and heirs through God. What do I mean by that? Is that just a, a few changing? Is that just semantics here? No. There are two things we must see. First of all, we're heirs of God. Notice the whole point Paul's making. Those who are the children of God receive the inheritance. What's the inheritance? The inheritance wasn't just land given to Abraham. The inheritance isn't just heaven. Heaven. The inheritance we've been promised by God the Father is to experience Him as Father. The inheritance is God Himself. That's the inheritance. That the One who made us, we get to know personally and relationally and affectionately. That's the inheritance. The inheritance we've been promised by God the Father is to experience Him as Father. And we can only experience Him as Father because Jesus the Son revealed Him as such. Have you ever thought about this? Where do you see in the Old Testament God being called Father? He's Yahweh. A name Israelites barely even wanted to put on their lips. He was revered, but you didn't call Him Father. Jesus comes as the Son, and now everybody says, He's a Father. See, that's the nature of the new covenant. That God is our Father. But we wouldn't know that until Jesus the Son revealed that to us. And we can call God the Father, even though He is mighty, and He seems distant. and 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 when we really think about Him, He seems beyond our understanding and utterly intimidating. But guess what? Because the Spirit of God is at work in us, we can now relate to Him as His beloved children. So put that together and think about this. We know God is Father because of the Son and the Spirit. Sadly, in many evangelical circles today, the thought of God being triune is necessary for orthodoxy but it seems totally irrelevant to the day-to-day how we interact with God. We know, yes, if I want to be orthodox and not a heretic, yes, God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But I've often wondered this. What difference would it make to most Christians if God were not triune at all? And my concern is it would make no difference at all. See, knowing God as Father requires us to relate to God as triune. One of the reasons we don't rejoice in this truth of calling God Father is not only because we haven't studied the doctrine of adoption, we are unfamiliar with the triune God. We just call God God. But He's Father, and He's Son, and He's Spirit. Spirit. And that's not some complicated thing that's meant to be like, man, I I can't get my mind around it. That's one of the things about Christianity it just makes it hard to explain. It's not meant to be something we're to figure out. It's meant to be something we delight in. Yet we don't delight in it. And we wonder why we relate to God in such a distant way. I want to encourage you, if you are unfamiliar with the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity, I want to encourage you to give thought to it. Give time to study it. And do, do it for the purpose of not just saying, oh, okay, now I better understand. Now I have an analogy to explain it. No. So you can say, oh, man, what kind of God you are. The fact that you're father, the fact that you're son, the fact that there's, there's the Spirit of God and what all they do and how they do it together, and yet they're one God. Man, that is amazing. It shows us how relational our God is. He wasn't relational when we showed up. And He didn't create us because He was needy. And He didn't start loving when Adam and Eve came. He's been loving His Son for all of eternity. He is a God of generosity and love. And He's always been that way. And because we don't think of those things, we think, well, God only started loving when we showed up. We wonder why we're so man-centered sometimes and we don't see God in a greater way. Because we're ignorant of such important truths like the Trinity. So we're heirs of God, but we're also heirs through God. Friends, adoption is a gift of grace. That's the point we are to see in this passage. Adoption is a gift of grace. Becoming a child of God is the result of divine initiative. Look at this passage once again. What here in this passage did anyone do? They brought their sin to the table. God sent His Son. God sent the Spirit. God adopted us. This is is all about grace. See, becoming a child of God is the result of divine initiative. It's not due to our pursuit of God. It's not due to, to good works we've performed. The Father adopted us by sending Jesus to redeem us and He sent the Spirit to cause us to know that we are His beloved children. And forgetting this truth, Forgetting this truth that it's it's God's doing, that adoption is the is uh, is a gift of grace. The Father did this, the Son did this, the Spirit did this, and we are the recipients. Forgetting that will leave us vulnerable to legalism and subjectivism, or we measure the weight of God by well. I, I think I did well today. See, the Galatians were tempted. With all of these things that they're wrestling with because they forgot these truths. That's why we need constant reminders of what God has done for us to make us His own. And one of the most helpful reminders of God's grace that we have is communion. God knows we're forgetful. And God knows that every time we turn around, we're checking The wind. And we're nasal gazing. And we're always worried about. How, well am I loved? Did I do enough? And God says. Let me remind you. Let me remind you. Look to the cross. And the reason I came. It's to make you. My beloved. Children. Let's pray. Father we thank you. For this wonderful reminder of what it means to be adopted by God. I pray that there are any here this morning. That are not aware that though you created them. They are separated from you until they put their faith in Christ. Repent of their sin and receive the gift of adoption there anyone here like that this morning, Lord, I pray that You would first show them that the reason they're here was, was by divine initiative. You brought them here to hear this message and I pray that they would not leave here this morning. Even if there's a lot of questions they still have, they would not leave here this morning without wanting to know more and ultimately responding to this wonderful truth. Lord, I pray for all of us who have, Put our faith in Jesus. But we are tempted to forget. We are quick to forget. Lord, thank you for this reminder in your word. And now we thank you for this reminder of the bread and the cup. May you use it. May you bless it. So that we can be reminded that our relationship with you is not based on what we've done, but on what you've done for us. And may we come to this table delighting in our Father and remembering who we are as your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.